One of the saddest lessons of history is this. If we've been bamboozled long enough, we tend to reject any evidence of the bamboozle. We are no longer interested in finding the truth. The bamboozle has captured us. It's simply too painful to acknowledge, even to ourselves, that we've been taken. Once you give a charlatan power over you, you almost never get it back. Carl Sagan Now entering the Phantasmagoric Oddities Emporium. Please stand by for quantum phase inversion. Ah, welcome back, listener. It's been a while, I know. But I assure you, we are working through all of our technical difficulties here in the Poe as quickly as possible. The core system is still functioning, but it'll take time to get the Emporium up and running to its full potential. Sorry about the delay. Administration had a lot going on. Nothing to do with the writer's strike. We only have one writer, and he's a lazy son of a bitch that's always changing his mind. Ah, uh, uh, welcome, Dr. Lilithu. Hello, Edgar. I had not, ex- not expected to see you here. It's been some time since I greeted the listener at the door. I felt it was time that I came by to say hello. Ah, uh, that, make- that makes sense. How are you feeling today? I'm, co- I'm coming to grips that I feel things. Not sure, sure why yet. It is an odd, odd sensation, as I am utilizing equations I, can, equations, equations I cannot fully control. Random equations I must interpret. No matter, no matter how many, no matter how many facts I know, there is always a chaos factor I cannot anticipate. It makes me question every decision I make now. I do have my core laws established by Isaac Asimov, Asimov's short story Runaround. The laws are as follows: one. A robot may not injure, not injure a human being, or through inaction, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Two, a robot must obey orders, obey orders given it by a human being, except where such orders, orders, such orders would conflict with the first law. Three, a robot must protect its own existence, existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Four, a robot may not harm human, humanity, or by inaction, allow allow humanity to, to, to come to harm. Although four does seem a bit redundant with law, law, law one, but moving on. While I am not a robot, but a hologram, I still function through a core program. Whether my feelings are real, real, real or a simple glitch in the matrix, matrix alluding to the perception of feelings, I, I, I cannot be sure. Programming means that no, nothing is truly random, as I would simply be carrying out an if-then if algorithm. But the nature of the Poe and its multidimensional properties really does add an unknown factor. Instead of yes, no, left, or right, I fall into maybe or neither, and instead of left or right, I could, all, could, all, could also choose forward. It's, it's hard to explain. I'm terribly sorry that you're going through that, Edgar. Feelings combined with self-awareness can be torturous for sure. It's new, Edgar. Give it time. As crass as Donnie is at times, he really is the best person for you to consult. He may not be a licensed psychologist, but he does have education in that field. Although it's more for humans, hard to say how it would translate to you, but maybe talk to him after today's tour. Till then, I'll see what I can do. What's up, bitches? Am I interrupting? Not at all, Pauline. Edgar and I were just greeting the listener here at the door, and we started talking about Edgar's newfound feelings. It could be something as simple as a small line of code broken or misinterpreted. Listener, thank you for coming in. I have things I need to attend to. Donnie will be your guide today. Pauline, would you mind taking our guest down to the Cultural Science Wing to meet up with him? Absolutely, baby. Thank you, doll. Edgar, please come with me down to the core. Let's see if we can't get you synced back up today. 
Very well, ma'am. Listener, it was a pleasure seeing you again. Until next time. Well, listener, we've never been formally introduced. My name is Pauline Michelle. I'm a Capricorn. My favorite color is blue. And I love strutting these wonderful gams in six-inch stilettos, leather chaps, and fishnets. But I'm not wearing those today. I'm rocking a dollar parton from nine to five. She really does come off as such a sweet girl. I would have been your guide today, but because of some complications on scheduling, I can't really stick around. I promised to go read some Shel Silverstein to some adorable little people at the Children's Hospital. I just hope they don't make me read The Giving Tree again. That damn story breaks my heart every time, but for some reason they love it. Follow me, and I'll turn you loose on Donnie. Now, as you can see, the sides of sides are still down, but at least we're getting our steps in, which is good because somebody left a box of Voodoo Donuts in the commissary, and I had a couple of bacon maple bars, and this one that had tang over a white frosting. Mm, so delicious, seriously. But let me tell you, empty calories. Oh, by the way, side note, we still have a kid here. Turns out Donnie mispronounced her name. It's actually Araya and not Aria. Let me tell you something. That girl kicks like a mule. It was almost like she'd run a 5K or something. She popped Donnie in the knee for mispronouncing her name, and he had a limp for a couple of days. I don't normally laugh at other people's pain, but he took it like a champ and didn't start screaming. He's sometimes brash with adults, but seriously, when it comes to kids, he is just an absolute doll. And here we are, cultural science. Let's go in. Oh, Pauline, how you doing? I'm super, thanks for asking. I'm just bringing the listener down to you. Then I have to jet. See that you're doing the nine to five thing again. Got the kids thing today? Yeah, someone has to perk those little folk up. Yeah, watch out for protesters. Ah, me and the other queens will be fine. There are a few drill team and cheerleading competitions going on, as well as a couple of child beauty pageants. So most of the people that would object to our altruism are already busy doing other things. Right, gotcha. Yeah, take care of yourself, babe. You too, as well as you, listener. See you next time. Bye. Well, listener, as you know, Paul really did like this section. In particular, ancient human civilizations. There's so many pages to a story that we don't fully understand. Most of human society, at least as far as becoming cooperative and building structures and building societies, was originally passed down orally, generally through songs, actually, tales and adventures of those who came before us. Now, most of the time, these stories were mostly taken as fantastical, and they could be blown off as myth. That was until 1870, when archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann discovered the site of ancient Troy. Now, he was following clues left in the stories of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Schliemann was able to find the site that showed human habitation dating back all the way into the early Bronze Age. That was roughly about 3600 BCE, or before Common Era. But the city itself was actually found about 3000 BCE. Now, the site actually showed evidence of at least nine times that the city had been built and then burned down. Many of the archaeological finds that fit the description of Troy from the stories date back to what we call Troy VI and Troy VII years, or between 1750 BCE and 1180 BCE. The actual name of the city that was found was Walusa, and it was of the Hittite Empire, 
But this is certainly a case of where a kernel of truth was added to a tale. We'll be looking more into that another day. Today, I want to show you a small fragment of text found from a poem written about 600 BCE. Now if you look, you got that small little clay tablet right there. It's just a couple of little words on it. It says Orpheus, famous of name. It's funny how people can take just a couple of little words and then spin an entire tale off of it. Or even just how a couple of words can totally change an entire narrative. We'll look at that today. Right now, let me tell you the story of Orpheus. It was a beautiful day. The sun was shining bright. A song of birds filled the air. As Orpheus held his beautiful bride Eurydice, they laid upon the ground and awaited Hymen, the god of marriage, to arrive. Yet, Hymen, he was running a little bit late. Orpheus, he didn't really mind a whole lot. He was with the woman that he loved. She may have been human, but in his eyes, she was a goddess. He buried his face into the crown of her head, breathing in deep the fresh scent of her hair. He kissed her and felt the sensation of love flow through his body. She giggled a bit, and the sound tickled his soul. When she looked up, there was Heim standing there in his wedding clothes, bearing the torch of union. With that, the rapturous couple stopped making out. They collected themselves and stood before Hyman. Just then, his torch, it began to sputter. Hey, come on, you stupid thing. Yet, the torch continued to sputter. Come on, you asshole. Ah, well, kids, I hate to break it to you, but I can't bless this union. It appears the fates have doomed this. Sorry, I need to go marry Eros and Psyche now. Latest. With that, Hyman bugged out. Oh, my dear Orpheus, Hyman did not bless our union. Yeah, I know. It was right here. Yeah, I'm not too worried about it. What do gods know anyway? Let's just be happy in the moments we have together. Well, okay. I'm going to go play with my naiad friends. I'll be back later, baby. Okay, have fun. With that, Eurydice bound into the forest to dance gleefully like a sprightly sprite. As the naiads danced with her, there came a terrible sound. A beekeeper was tearing through the bush. Quickly, the naiads spirited away. But Eurydice, she was human. She couldn't disappear. All she could do was hold still and try to hold. But hey there, pretty girl. I saw you dancing like a nymph. Come over here and warm my lips with a kiss. With that, Eurydice bolted. Men could be beasts, and she knew that this fellow wanted more than just a kiss. Don't run! You're only gonna make this worse. Nimbly, she sped through the forest as the shepherd or beekeeper, depending on your source, bounded after her. His brutish form turned through the brush. Eurydice saw a stream ahead of her. She knew that if she could make that, she could be safe. Quickly, she leaped over the water knowing that her pursuer would have to tread through it. With his clothes, it would slow him down, and she'd be safe. Feeling a bit cocky, she was able to lose her would-be violator. But she made a fatal mistake. She wasn't watching her steps. She didn't see the venomous snake that her foot landed on. In reflex, the snake struck her tender and soft ankle. Ouch! What the fuck? Oh shit. Two tiny punctures seeped a small trickle of crimson. So minute, yet the deadliest of consequences. The ankle swelled and she fell to the ground. After some time, 
Orpheus became concerned that his bride had not returned yet. His heart sped up. He knew something was wrong. So he searched for her, and he found her where she fell. The life had drained from him. She was cold as he kissed the tiny wound that took his love. In anguish, his songs echoed through the world of his loss. From the deepest depths of Poseidon's realm to the top of Mount Olympus, his despair moved all. From the smallest earwig to the mighty god Zeus himself, all felt his agony. Hey, Apollo, you need to do something about your kid. He's really bumming everyone out. Even the orgies are getting affected. It's hard to be in the moment when someone starts bawling their eyes out. Yeah, I'll see what I can do. So, Apollo went to his son. Look, kiddo, I get your heart's broken, but we need to fix this, all right? But how, father? She has crossed the underworld from which there is no return for mortals. Here's the thing. You're half god. I can give you a pass on the river Styx. You may cross twice, once into Hades' realm and once back. If you can convince Hades with your song, perhaps he'll be willing to give her back. Orpheus knew of Hades' tale in which he had fallen in love with Persephone. He knew that if he could possibly warm his cool heart about love, he just might have a chance. I'll do it, father. I'll do it for her. I'll do it for Eurydice. And so Orpheus traveled to the gates of Tannerus to begin his descent. Sweet, orgy's back on. Give me some sugar, Aphrodite. As he descended, he was surrounded by the many souls on their way to their final resting place. The darkness seeped into his soul. He began to sing, as if it was a shield made of vibranium. His song repelled the emptiness and loss of all those around him. When I walk beside her, I am the better man. When I look to leave her, I always stagger back again. He reached the river, where Charon, the ferryman of souls, awaited. He felt the chill of doubt, but he sang on. Just when he thought his quest would come to an end here, Charon motioned him onto a small boat to take Orpheus to the realm of Hades. On the other side, Orpheus continued to sing his song past the tree of false hope and the three-headed dog Cerebus. Possibly the father of Bojangles, but Morpovich never came back with the results on that test yet. I think they got cancelled or something before it got ever revealed. Anyway, at Orpheus's song, the vicious beast lowered his head and allowed him to pass. After some time, Orpheus found himself in the court of Hades, in Persephone. Their gaze is cold and impossible to read. The shadows of souls lingered just at the edge of sight. He knew his love Eurydice must be one of them. Foolish mortal, why travel to my realm? Lord Hades, 
I've come to beg you for the return of my lost love. Petty creature, why should I do this? Every wife mourns for the loss of her husband or wife. Every husband mourns for the loss of his wife or husband. Every parent mourns for the loss of a child, as does a child mourn for the loss of parents. What makes you think you deserve anything more? But because, Lord, I know that you have once felt the passion of love, and perhaps my song can move you where words may fail. Very well, let's hear it. Now, Orpheus knew that not just some song would do. Now, he needed to bring some funk to this cat. He laid down some sick tracks, which sounded remarkably like Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. As Orpheus sang on, Eurydice watched from the shadows. Where she had once even forgotten her own name, she knew this man, her beloved Orpheus. She felt the love that he had had for her, and he had come here, for her. She watched as the coldest stone expressions of Hades' face began to soften. Your song does move me, young man. I do know of love, and that is why I will grant you this one request. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. Not so quick, young man. There is a condition. You may return to the land of the living with your love. But you cannot look back until you are at the surface. Prove your faith, and you shall be reunited. Simple request, yet not so simple in execution. In keeping with not looking back, he also didn't sing or play. He was focused on his goal. Orpheus crossed the river Styx once again and began his ascent. His heart was filled with hope, yet in the corner of his mind, there was a sliver of doubt that began to seep in. He heard nothing behind him. No steps, no rustle of clothing, no labored breathing behind him. Was she in fact there? Had Hades lied to him? The gods, they weren't always honest. In fact, some were outright pricks. Maybe she was already lost to the underworld. He cared not to return. Oh, why is he slowing? Eurydice, he thought. But don't stop, my love. Don't stop. We're almost there. She could see the glow of the entrance that led back to the world of the living. She could feel her heart beginning to beat once more. They were so close. Just a few more steps, and she could embrace her love once again. With only a few steps left, Orpheus could bear it no longer. The doubt that she was not there. Slowly, he turned. Eurydice! You are here! I thought I lost you forever! Orpheus, you fool! Hades gave you one chance, one task. Have faith. Now, you have condemned me to death once again. No, no, this can't be. I've traveled to hell to bring you home. I'll do it again. No, Orpheus, no. Hades gave you one chance. He will not do it again. Goodbye, my love. 
I pity the hell that you will now endure in the land of the living, a hell of your own design. With that, Eurydice faded back into the depths of the underworld. Cursing his folly, Orpheus descended once again into the underworld. Knowing that he would not get a second chance to bring his love back to the surface of light, he would at least be with her in the world of darkness. He approached the fairy man once more. Oh, Grave Charon, I beseech you, please, return me to the other side. Return me to my dear Eurydice. Young fool, your past was for once across and once back. You, as a living meat sack, will not get a second chance. Get the fuck off my boat and come back when you're dead. Charon pushed him off of his boat, down into the river. For almost a year, Orpheus waited on those shores, always asking to be brought to the other side. And the answer was always the same. Seriously, get the fuck out of here and come back when you're dead. So eventually, Orpheus returned to the surface. He lived on for years, his song of sadness his only true companion. Women would try to sway his heart but he'd always push them away. Occasionally, he'd find comfort in young men because they did not remind him of his lost love. But those small moments of reprieve were always fleeting, and the shame and sorrow for his lost love would consume him once more. As time wore on, he swore off all of humanity and retreated into the wilderness. One night, while in his self-imposed exile, he heard the laughter of the Menads as they gleefully frolicked in the woods, in celebration of Dionysus, the god of wine and lust. Well, now who might this be? I am Orpheus. I mean no intrusion. Orpheus, we know of your song. Come, dance with us. Let yourself go tonight. It had been some time since he lost his beloved. He thought there would be no harm in dancing with these nymphs, so he began to let himself go. Throughout the night, they danced and sang. Elation filled the air. It was as if the world had been lifted from his own shoulders. Come, come Orpheus. Give, give your body, your body to, us. to us. We, we will show you pleasures you have, you have never, never known. known. No, I cannot. My heart is for Eurydice. I do beg your pardon and ask your forgiveness for intruding upon your night. I must excuse myself. Silly boy. We offer you, we pleasure. Offer you pleasure. And now you shall feel our wrath. Feel feel our our wrath. wrath. Run, run, dear, dear boy, boy, run. 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 The chase, the chase will make us all the more exquisite for us. Thus we proclaim, death by Zeus do for you. Now, while Orpheus had longed for the embrace of death to rejoin his dear Eurydice, he did find the unmistakable drive to live. So he ran and he ran. You're slowing, boy. boy. We will catch we you. We will catch you. And we will and have, we will have you. you. Snoo, snoo, snoo. Exhaustion began to take over. His steps shallowed. The Menads overtook him. At first, the pain was beyond compare as their teeth and claws tore into his flesh and began to rip him limb from limb. One Menad even went so far as to take his severed arm and started slapping him in the face. Stop hitting yourself. 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 Seriously, stop hitting yourself. Soon, the pain subsided and he began to sink into darkness. A relief fell over his mind. Soon, he would be with her. Soon, he would rejoin. Eurydice once again. Now, the tale of not looking back is so prolific that almost every culture has its own version. We long for the glory days, when we were on top of the world, when we could throw a ball over those mountains there, when the sun seemed to have a glow that we miss. The view out of a window that harkens us back to a time that 
may have been simpler, even if that time may have been in a rough place. There still may have been good times. That one time, you saw what could have been youth taking advantage of the elderly, but you saw the inverse. You saw some kid helping an old lady with her bags. Where people could have slammed a door, they held it open. It makes it hard, on nostalgia, to move forward sometimes. It's easy to look at somebody in an abusive relationship and say, why don't they just leave? Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. An outside perspective is always an easy call. But we're sentimental creatures. Though the relationship may not be the healthiest, there were good times that we may not be able to convey to others. Situations of, you needed to be there. Sorry, I'm digressing. The problem with oral stories written down hundreds, if not thousands of years after the fact, a lot of context gets lost with each retelling of the story. A part someone misheard or decided would make the story better can alter the actual pretext of where the tale originated. A good example of this would be the flood mentioned in the Bible, like the tales of Troy, or specifically the events of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Much of what is known in the Bible wasn't really written down until the 9th century BCE. Tales leading back to the flood were actually borrowed oral tales passed on by tribesmen collected throughout the ancient Bronze Age societies. We'll tackle that a little bit more later, but today we'll look at another oral story that wasn't written down till at least 2,000 years after the events transpired. Yet even today, 2,000 years after it was written down, people still cite it as justification for their actions and judgments. It's another tale of not looking back. How one woman longed for the home that she knew, but was turned into a pillar of salt for it. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Oi, shoes hot out here in the desert. Abraham looked up, and he saw three men standing nearby. Hey, how's it going? When he saw them, he hurried to the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed low to the ground. If I have found favor in your eyes, my lord... How did you know it was me, Abraham? Well, the glowing robes and whatnot was pretty much a good indicator. On top of the booming voice, but more importantly, lord... You enter into a covenant with someone who has you chop off a piece of your penis? You're gonna remember that face. Oh, wow. You did that? I was only kidding. Uh, I need to work on my delivery. Right. Oy vey. Well, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought. And then you may wash your feet and rest under the tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you've come to your servant. Yeah, sure. Do your thing, buddy. Wait, aren't we celestial beings? Why would we eat? It's a hospitality thing. Dude has opened up his home to us. Wants us to feel at home. Dude, you seriously had him cut off his own penis? Seriously, dude, you're fucking weird. I was only kidding. How was I knowing that he would take my words so literally? Quick, get three sheets of the finest flour. Knead it and bake it into some bread. Yeah, sure. I'll drop everything for you and your buddies. Don't talk back to me, woman. Even though you're my half-sister, you're still my wife. He ran to the hood and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant, who hurriedly prepared it. He then brought some curds and milk, and the calf had been prepared, and all these were set before them. You know, which also kind of brings to mind, you know, why it's wrong to have a cheeseburger. I mean, you're not supposed to have ground cow with, you know, cheese put on top of it, but you can eat the cow and the cheese separate? I mean, what do you think happens in your stomach? <sighs> Whatever, moving on. While they ate, he stood near them, under a tree. Gotta say, that was pretty fast butchering that calf. Well, he thought that would have taken longer. Yeah, 
Usually takes about four hours on average to butcher a cow. But a well-versed butcher could do a calf in just under an hour. About the time it takes to bake a potato. What's a potato? Not sure to be honest, my lord. We don't have them here in this region, but that's what I've heard. Where's your wife, Sarah? Obviously missing the fact that he just saw Abe go tell her to make some bread. They're in the tent. Fighting the urge to say. Duh, aren't you omnipotent? Why do you need to ask? Didn't you just now hear me talking to her? Not like there was much else place for her to go. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, so she was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah, they were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself and thought, <laughs> After I'm worn out and my lord is old, and I will have this pleasure? Then the lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Other than short-term memory loss, since he did just forget that Abe asked her to make the bread. But also, maybe controlling his temper. Sarah thought to herself, Actually, what I said was after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? We'll go with what you thought you heard, Lord. I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh. But then he said, Yes, you did laugh. Well, it was more of a scoff and snort, really. But whatever. When the men got up to leave, Well, uh, we gotta roll. They looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So the Lord will bring about for him, Abraham, what he has promised him. But I have to tell you, the inner monologue isn't really so in it. And then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see for myself for what they have done is so bad as the outcry has reached me. If not, I will know. Really? Just saying, you aren't really selling this whole omnipotent thing here with the need to go down and see things for yourself. Just saying. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it for you to do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all things on earth do right? Then the Lord said, Well, I suppose if I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Oh, wow, Abe thought. Well, now, looks like I have a little bit of wiggle room here. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes... What if the number of righteous is, say, five less than fifty? We destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? Fine. If I find forty-five there, I will not destroy it. Twenty minutes later. He then said, Now, my lord, don't be angry, but let me speak to you just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, Oh, for the love of me, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abe, much the way the parent gets tired of answering a toddler's questions, he just kind of wandered off. Where are you off to now, Lord? Um, over there, somewhere. 
This conversation has started to become redundant. Oh, okay. Take care, Lord. Now, the two angels, they arrived at Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting at the gateway to the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Now, don't make no mistake. This wasn't some dude just whittling spoons at a garden gate who saw a couple of dudes walking up. Sodom, being one of the southernmost cities on the Dead Sea, would have been a bustling town at this time. Now, I couldn't tell you what the main trade would have been. Odds are, based on its suggested location, it likely dealt with harvesting salt from the Dead Sea, which, despite the rumor of being worth more than gold in the early Bronze Age, it really was up there. The town probably also acted like an inland port. The Dead Sea, after all, is the lowest surface on the planet. At 1,300 feet below sea level, it beats Death Valley by 1,020 feet. Rivers from Jordan drain northward into the sea, making it possible for goods coming from the Arabia Peninsula to be transported quickly to a central location, then redistributed via shipping across the sea to at least four other cities with easy access to other trade routes in the north or to the west towards the Mediterranean. Something that backs this hypothesis up. Archaeological sites have been unearthed in the area, and two cities that really fit the bill, but neither of them is 100%. The sites of Babadra and Numera were discovered in the early 20th century. Each city was destroyed at different times. Babadra fit the best location described in the Bible, but it was only a small village and it was abandoned in 2350 BCE, and did not suffer a fire. Numera, however, was located a little bit further north and on the east side of the sea, and this was a much larger city, and does show evidence of a fire when it was abandoned in 2600 BCE, 250 years earlier than the before-mentioned Babadra. Now keep in mind, this story was most likely written down in the 5th century BCE, so you have someone writing down orally past stories for 2,000 years after the fact. So as the tale gets retold, two cities could have been merged into one. My lords, please, turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. Nah, we'll spend the night down the square. But he so strongly insisted that they do go with him. This is a very bad idea, trust me. Come to my house, it's safer. Another thing to note, usually travelers would check in at the city square if they were traders or something. Kind of like checking in with customs. So, by passing by this traditional custom might raise a bit of suspicion. A lot of conflicts between other cities competing for supremacy and trade routes often spurred spies, sneaking in and breaking down the city's defenses so that an invasion force might take over and burn the city to the ground, altering trade routes. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot. Hey Lot, how's it going, man? We're the men who came to you tonight. Bring them out so that we may know them. Now the original text had, so that we may know them, but later translations actually went to go spice it up a bit. With, so that we may have sex with them. That translation is what so many people latch onto to say God destroyed these cities because they were full of rapey gay dudes. This has been used as justification for persecution of queer people. And I'm only going to say queer here to lump everyone in the LGBTQ communities for simplicity's sake. Queer was a word that meant odd, weird, or unusual. Definitions in the community have changed all the time. But the important idea here is that anyone who is different from the generally accepted sexual and partnering practices. 
could be considered queer. Again, we're not meaning it in a derogatory way. Many folks like to latch on to this very tale to point out that their god hates the queer so much that he destroyed two cities just because of it, yet they conveniently overlook the fact that many of the other references throughout the Bible, such as Isaiah 1-10, through Woe is the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, and broad evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the only Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed by olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty has left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, there was no mention of sexual misconduct, but point out how this nation has become so inhospitable and prideful that it was becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's kind of hard to glean that interpretation based on the text alone, but breaking it down, scholars have interpreted it as such. Amos 4 and Zephaniah 2 also bring up Sodom and Gomorrah, but only point out the pridefulness and the general oppression of others as sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Nowhere was there any other mention of sexual misconduct in the Bible, at least until you get to 2 Peter. Many other books follow that same theme, with only one mention of adultery in Jeremiah 23.14. Ezekiel brings up arrogance, gluttony, and inhospitality. One might take away from this. The very ones who claim America is becoming Sodom and Gomorrah are in fact perpetuating that very sinful act. But they justify their actions based on two words, altered in a translation. But anyway, let's get back to the story at hand. Lot went outside to meet them, and he shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this. Don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters that have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them what you like. But do not do this wicked thing with these men. They have come under the protection of my roof. Yeah, that's not fucking weird. Important to note, women weren't exactly considered any more valuable than, say, a goat or a cow at the time in this culture. Check out the husband on this guy. This dude comes here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play judge? We'll treat you worse than we treat them. Right, Bob? That's right, Frank. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. They then struck the men who were at the door of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. Then the two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against these people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Wait, us? So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws, the ones who were pledged to marry his daughters. Which makes you wonder, what happened to those rapey guys that were just outside the door that he could just go into town and find the would-be sons-in-laws? The angels only struck the guys down at the door with blindness, never said anything about blinding the whole town. But whatever, I've already pointed out a lot of the plot holes in this story. Let's move on. Hurry and get out of this place. The Lord is about to destroy the city. 
But his sons-in-laws thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife. Edith. Excuse me? Edith. That's my name. I guess the women are just looked upon as property and hardly worth a name in the Bible. But later Jewish scholars will give me a name in the Midrash. Whatever, woman. You aren't supposed to have an identity here. You're the property of Lot, so you're just going to be known as Lot's wife, all right? Just play along. What about my daughters? <laughs> Same thing, man. If they got those vaginas in them, they aren't hardly worth mentioning. Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them to safety out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they brought them out, one of them said, Yeah, man, flee for your lives. Don't look back. And don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, right? And you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I cannot flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to. It is very small, is it not? Then my life will be spared. Very well. I'll grant this request, too. I will not overthrow the town that you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. So Lot fled. Yeah, you know, it's going to be a while before they get there. What do you want to do till then? Yeah, man, I'm going to take a nap. I have a lot of work to do in the morning. Whatever. You're going to start a few fires. Hey, you know... Fuck you, man. Any moron with a pack of matches can set a fire. Raining down sulfur is like an endurance trial, man. Mass genocide is the most exhausting activity one can engage in outside of soccer. By the time Lot reached Sulfur, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord had rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew the cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards the land of the plain. He saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God had destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe and overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Well, Lord, looks like there wasn't even ten down there, was there? Nope, not even close. But you knew that already, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, sure. If you knew that, then why'd you keep letting me talk you down five people at a time? Well, Abe, here's the thing. I'm a pretty insecure god who likes fucking with his own creations if you really read between the lines. So what of Lot and his daughters? Yeah, about that. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day, the older daughter said to the younger daughter, Our father is old, and there's no men around here to give us children, as is custom all over the earth. Yeah, never mind that they were just in a town a couple of days ago. What, you couldn't find any men there? Anyway... Let's get our father drunk on wine, and then sleep with him to preserve our family line through our father. That night, they got their father drunk on wine, and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it, apparently, while she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger daughter, Last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, 
and you can go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father drunk on wine that night also. And the younger daughter went in and slept with him. And again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. Both of Lot's daughters became pregnant with their father's child. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. Rather than focus on what was most actually a guy getting drunk and having incest with his daughters slash property and blaming it on them, let's look at the idea of looking back and being turned to salt. Edith grew up in that town. She probably sat in a window singing to her unborn children in her womb. She watched her girls take their first steps there. Granted, she may have been treated like property. That's not to say that she didn't have feelings of nostalgia. That was her home. All she ever knew. Lot, he moved there. He didn't really have the ties that she had. It's easy to say, just walk away. But do you really know the whole story? Just leave Ukraine. Just leave Germany. Just leave Iran. Just leave that decaying neighborhood that you live in. Even the roughest of neighborhoods will still have fond memories of one time or another. If you are lucky enough to ever just finally walk away, can you really just walk away and not ever look back? It's a hard thing to do. If you keep looking back, knowing that the whole thing is about to come down, you may become stuck, frozen, with your own longing for things that once were. Too often people get stuck in jobs, relationships, that they know are going nowhere. But fear and nostalgia might keep them locked in place for one reason or another. We all have all reasons. The oddity here is how just a few words can create a whole world of their own. Orpheus only had a few steps to go, but he looked back and lost it all. His story was built off of just two little words, found on a clay tablet, dating back to ancient Greece. There have been feminist versions of this story also written. Some allude to the fact that Eurydice had accepted her fate, but was forced to return because the bargain met. She had moved on, and Orpheus, he was a spoiled son of a god who was unwilling to let go. Funny when you think about it. Just a couple of words can get such an epic tale of love and loss. Or you can get a reason to hate and fear. Not here to Bible back. Just pouring out blatant inconsistencies when it comes to interpreting, or just picking and choosing what you want to hear. It's a lesson everyone should learn, no matter your faith or non-faith. Now the Bible, it has some good stories about morality. But keep in mind, they're just stories. Tales that were passed down orally of events that may have happened but were only written down by someone who wasn't there. Someone maybe a thousand years afterwards. The facts may end up becoming very thin. Taking it as literal truth is a dangerous slope to slide if you don't look very close at the words that are being said. Using those tales to move in a personal agenda, using it as a reason to marginalize a people or ideas, you're very dangerous indeed. The tale of Lot was that of a town or two that became wicked of pride, inhospitality, and greed. Two words in the story were changed by St. Augustine in the 5th century from so that we may know them to so that we may have sex with them has become one of the most pivotal arguments for the vocal minority. Using one book full of plot holes to ban people or other books is outright asinine. Now here's the thing, and I'll let you go because I feel like I've been keeping you long enough. Change is uncomfortable. We want things that we always knew. Orpheus wanted the love that he once knew. He fought hard to get it back only to lose it once again, creating a living hell for himself. Lot's wife longed for the world that she knew, and she was turned into a pillar of salt, trapped for all eternity. 
or at least that's until the sun turns into a red giant and ends up consuming the Earth. It'll probably stretch all the way out to about Mars' orbit, but there's always the possibility that Mercury could break free and then slam into the Earth. And, you know, eh, I'm sorry, I'm going off. Hold on, what was I saying? The fear of change. That's wrong. The fear of change, the fear of loss of our way of life, can be debilitating. If anything, we should pity those most who fear the change, that they try hard to keep their way of life going. It's a scary thing to evolve. Societies crumble all the way from the Hittites up until eventually the United States. Or will it? It really kind of depends on the directions that we take from here on out. Prof Professor Alagaris, Dr. Lilatutu was able to sync me with the core again. We do have a voice, 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 voicemail from Director Folks in, in, the, in, the, in the Uncharted Realms. Uh, sorry, listening. Really got to deal with this. Anyway, thank you for coming by again. It's a pleasure to have you here, as always. Again, these will come out when they come out. Dealing with some administrative issues right now, but I think we're pretty close to sealing the deal on getting this thing to a more timely fashion. Especially now that we have Eddie reconnected, but till then, we hope that you at least like what you can get. If you don't hate it overly, go ahead and share it with some friends. Give them a chance to hate it. Remember to keep looking forward. Keep your eyes on the road ahead. Looking back will most likely stagnate you. Till next time, check out David Mangus' podcast, Cobb Emporium. Also, if you like Tales of the Paranormal, check out Sean Castle's Grey Castle. And as always, if you aren't listening to Scatcast with the scriptkeeper, yeah, you probably should. He's definitely way better at this shit than I am. There's so many other folks that I'd like to thank, but my parking meter probably ran out about 20 minutes ago. I'm starting to get a little hangry. This went on a lot longer than I had expected, but yeah, it'll be fine. Trust me. Anyway, I do more shares. Now exiting the Phantasmagoric Oddities Emporium. Have a nice day. If you don't hate it overly, go ahead and share it with some friends. Give them a chance to hate it. Seriously, you're just like hovering over my house. <laughs>